And then my mom's diagnosis kind of changed all of that for me. And it made me realize that I can't wait to do these things that I, that I wanted to do. And I couldn't wait to see the world, um, that there are no guarantees that you will have, you know, a next year or 10 years from now, or even a tomorrow. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today, I talk with writer and journalist Maggie Downs, whose work has appeared in venues like McSweeney's and the New York Times and the Best Women's Travel Writing. Her first book out this month is Braver Than You Think, a memoir of backpacking solo around the world to complete her mother's bucket list while her mom was in the final stages of Alzheimer's disease. At one level, this book is about loss and grief, and we talk about that, but at the travel level, it's a very relatable tale about what it's like to travel around the world for the first time, and how that journey can be a lens for making sense of life itself, even as it proves to be a lot of fun. Along the way, Maggie and I talk about the challenges this kind of trip entails, from navigating unfamiliar languages to being attacked by a monkey in Bolivia. We talk about how she started the journey with her husband, Jason, but went most of the way alone and how that was part of her plan. Of course, when I first saw that her trip took her around the world through 17 countries in the course of a year, it piqued my curiosity about logistics, as this pre-interview exchange reveals. I saw where you'd been, and it's like, wow, did, did she use air tracks? And if not, how did she do that? Because this is like a bullseye air tracks type journey. Right. Yeah. No, they were, they were incredibly helpful. I remember just... I spent about an hour one night talking to some guy from Airtrex and um, telling him the places that I, I was thinking about going, and he kind of helped me refine it and work on that. Now, if you listen to this podcast regularly, you'll know that it's sponsored by Airtrex, whose itineraries I've been using for years. I actually knew about Maggie through our mutual friend and frequent Deviate guest, Todd Goldberg, but I didn't know she'd used Airtrex when I read her book. So it was kind of cool to hear her say that. You know, I've been talking about Airtrex for a long time, but I usually forget to mention their excellent phone support for trip planning. So while I encourage you to check them out at Airtrex.com and tinker with their online flight planning tools, please don't be afraid to call them for help with your itinerary at 1-877-AIRTREK once you've researched some options online. Of course, I realize that nobody's really doing much itinerary planning during this time of pandemic, but please keep Airtrex in mind when you do plan a long-term multi-stop journey, since they've been specializing in that kind of travel for 30 years now. For now, please enjoy the conversation as I talk to Maggie Downs about her around-the-world trip and the personal factors that influenced it. I start by sharing how I can relate to her journey at more than one level. Let's listen in. You know, a, a couple of things stood out from when I read your book, and one is that this kind of itinerary around the world is almost exactly to places that I've been before. And so I think a big part of this interview will literally be nerding out about the places you went to. Right. <laughs> but uh, another thing is is the Alzheimer's connection, you know, because when I tell my own travel story, a big part of it is the fact that my grandfather, who is someone I really respected, a Kansas farmer who'd worked hard his whole life, when he retired, um, he couldn't really enjoy his retirement because my grandmother had Alzheimer's at the time. And so when I was a teenager, and I, I tell this story a lot, um, I learned this hard lesson that life doesn't automatically reward you for a life of hard work. And so part of my impetus to travel the world when I was quite young was this idea that that Alzheimer's had, had sort of taken my grandparents' retirement from them. 
Um, and so I decided to go off and travel myself. Why don't you tell us about your connection to travel and, and Alzheimer's affecting your own life? Mm -hmm. um, so my mom was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's when I was in my 20s. And um, and it was, it was a crushing blow. Um, my mom was a person who she put off a lot of things that she wanted to do in her life. Um, so that she could raise a family and, um, and she thought she would have plenty of time and she was really, um, vivacious and really healthy. Um, so it was, it was just a, a big surprise to us when, um, when she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and then her decline happened so rapidly. Um, so it didn't take very long before she no longer knew my name, um, before it, she just didn't have the ability to leave the house. So there, it turns out there wasn't the time that she had anticipated and that she had kind of counted on. Um, and at the same time, I was putting a lot of things off because I was doing the things that I thought I was supposed to. And, um, you know, I went to college and I immediately got a job after that and had a 401k. And then, um, and then my mom's diagnosis kind of changed all of that for me. And it made me realize that I can't wait to do these things that I, that I wanted to do. And I couldn't wait to see the world, um, that there are no guarantees that you will have, you know, a next year or 10 years from now, or even a tomorrow, um, you need to create, create your own life and gather memories while you still can. Yeah, there's a line that you use there. You might be quoting your mom. You say, someday there will be time, there'll be plenty of time later. Um, mm -hmm. And that's something I hear all the time. You know, there's, there's just this assumption that um, in the uncertain future, you can do things, you can do your dreams, like traveling the world. Um, and so how did this process work? How did you realize, one, why, why travel of all things to do? And two, what was the process like once your mom got sick and once you realized that this is something that you wanted to make happen in spite of certain fears? Mm -hmm. um, it was it was kind of a long process. This wasn't something that happened overnight. So I made a list of things that I wanted to do. And one of those things was getting a new job and skydiving and, you know, just all, all the things that people write down. Um, and and one by one, I slowly ticked those off the list. I, I got a job in a bigger city and improved my career. And I did go skydiving and I really fell in love with the sport and developed a passion for skydiving. Um, and, and so I was ticking these things off the list. And then one of them was um, moved to California. So a couple of years after that, I, I moved out to Palm Springs, California. And then it's while I was working at a newspaper in Palm Springs that... Um, you know, I was covering these really great events uh, like Coachella or there's a big film festival here. Um, I would write about celebrities and and um, an interview, you know, anyone coming through town. And then um, I remember writing an article about a woman who a local woman um, who had won some sort of competition to host a show on the Travel Channel and um, and she was just this really cute, bubbly woman. And and I thought, wow, wouldn't it be great to travel? <laughs> but um, but I'm not I'm not as cute as she is and I'm not the kind of person that would host a TV show. So I guess travel isn't accessible to me. You know, um, 
I, I don't have a trust fund. I'm not wealthy. I don't have more than two weeks off at a time. So how it's not even possible. Um, and so, but that was kind of the start of me thinking like other people figure it out. <laughs> there has to be some way that I can do this. Um, and, and then the longer I spent in my job, even though I was covering interesting things, you know, when you're sitting in a cubicle and you're telling other people's stories at a certain point, like those walls start to tighten at your throat and it starts to feel like, like a panic attack. Like every day I would go into work and I would just dread being there. And I thought I can't spend every day of my life like this because then I'm, I'm not putting it to good use. And that's not what my mom would have wanted for me. So I need to make better use of these days. And, um, and that's when I decided to adjust course. Well, I, I related to that process of making that early decision and feeling those early fears because, I mean, this is a decision I made a long time ago, but I remember that thinking, well, I don't have money to travel because, you know, the, in America, we're sort of taught that that travel is this consumer product that you buy, right? Mm -hmm, right. And, and um, I, you mentioned not knowing many languages, and I remember that same fear, too. So how did you move from that point where you're sitting in your cubicle and you're dreaming of travel to this person who is actually putting on the backpack and doing it? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I didn't know if I could do it. Like on day one of the trip, I thought, I, I don't even really know how to use public transportation. <laughs> like I might be home in a week because I, I just didn't know if I was capable. Um, but that's the, that's the awesome thing about travel is that it really challenges you and puts you to the test and, um, and you get a chance to prove yourself. But another thing happened at this time, and this isn't in the book, but around the same time I reconnected with a high school friend and um, we, we reconnected on Facebook and she was living in Taipei at the time. And she said, you should come out and visit. And, and I immediately booked a ticket because I thought, when else am I going to have a chance to go to Asia, you know, and have someone on the other end waiting for me. And um, so I went to Taipei to visit her and she, my friend, Karen is just incredible. Like she's such a, a good traveler that I was in Taipei visiting her during a typhoon and she was like, put on your raincoat, we're going out. And she just dragged me everywhere. And she, um, you know, she and I did a couple little side trips while I was there and she took me to a couple other countries and I met backpackers. And that's where I, I really started forming the idea, like, if that person can do it, then I can do it. And I just, I read a lot of websites. I read a lot of blogs. I read your website. I read your book. I read um, everything I could about backpacking and how other people make this work. And I realized there were a lot of different paths to take, but, you know, that it's possible. Um, and then I just started selling my stuff. And, um, and paring things down and saving whatever money that I could. And then once I had $10,000 together, um, I was ready. I was off. So that was it, $10,000. That was it. Awesome. I, I also like the idea of this friend inviting you to Taipei because this actually comes up in another interview I did with Kevin Kelly, who who went on to uh, found Wired Magazine. He traveled in Asia for years, but that all started with a trip 
to a friend in Taipei, actually. And so I think that idea of social capital, there's there's something to be said for blogs and books, which are great, which are a great resource. But like one friend who can take you to a place and say, here, look at some backpackers. And just you can internalize that idea. Oh, these people don't seem that much savvier or smarter than me. And here they are. They've been traveling for years. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, and, you know, it was just um, just having like just a tiny opening into the world, like all of a sudden it throws everything open for you. So yeah, for me, it was Taipei. And, and now I feel so lucky because Taipei is awesome. (laughs) And, um, and I mean, what a great first destination to have like an entry into the world with incredible food and just a really vibrant city. That's cool. I've never I've never properly been in Taipei. I've I've sort of taken some transits through Taipei, but I haven't properly seen it. So I have to put that on my list. One thing that this this it occurs to me is that people have so many resources to plan trips these days. But I always say, look, you're going to be smarter after a week or two on the road than you ever will be for all of the research you do before the trip starts. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love it that Taipei was sort of your training wheels for what eventually became an around the world trip, and and that around the world trip. Seems like a lot of fun. One little twist about this particular trip is that it started with your husband, but you um, you sent him home after a while. How did, how did that work? <laughs> yeah, you know, he and I joke and tell people that um, we heard the first year of marriage is the hardest, so we uh-huh. decided to skip it. <laughs> and um, so we got married. Uh, in late March of 2010. And then in July, we went on our honeymoon to Peru. Um, We spent a few weeks together in Peru, and then he went back to California and I continued traveling solo. Um, So we communicated by Skype. And um, like I was in India during our one year wedding anniversary. And um, so I, I sent him like a I don't some kind of package of Indian food on um, on from Amazon, and so he was able to have an Indian dinner at the same time I was, and we like had a Skype date. Um, so we we kept in touch, but I was almost reluctant to even bring him into the book, into the story, because um, I think love stories can be so boring <laughs> sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, um, and as writing as a woman, I am very cognizant of how most, uh, not all, but just a lot of women's stories tend to be love stories, or there's that expectation there, or the idea that a woman is traveling for romance. And I just wanted to skip that. Um, but he's he's definitely a presence in this trip and and a presence in the book that I decided um, to pull out. Yeah, I, I thought that was cool. I, I mean, at one, I, I doubt not everybody. I mean, I can see people doing like an around the world one year honeymoon, but the sending <laughs> your husband home after the first country thing is a detail that is kind of cool, but maybe not very typical. So how did how did you negotiate that with your husband? I mean, how did that work in in um, just making that a part of your trip? I So we had uh, just adopted a blind and deaf dog that we named Lemon, um, kind of like a used car <laughs> and like a bad used car. Um, and, uh, and our dog was kind of crazy. And I remember he, he was just horrified at the idea that I would travel for a year and leave him with this dog. <laughs> 
And, um, and so like most of the negotiations were about the dog. It wasn't even like, Oh, I don't want you to travel or I don't, I don't want to miss out on spending a year together. It was more like, I can't believe you're going to leave me with this dog. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but over the the course of a year, lemon calmed down (laughs) and, um, and, you know, Jason found a happy medium with her. And then, um, and you know, it, it was like the actual travel was a little bit difficult. Um, like when I would call home and say, Oh, today I was attacked by a monkey and I had to get my hands sewn up by a veterinarian, you know, like how, how do you even respond to that? So there were some challenging times, but, um, but ultimately I'm really glad that I did it. Although now when I start to get too stressed out about my work, he's always like, okay, go meditate, go calm down, go get a massage, whatever you need so that you don't leave me for another year. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll look forward to his memoir, Staycation right. with Lemon. Right. right. <laughs> Actually, on, on, on the topic of writing, when you went on this journey, did you know you were going to write a book about it or was it a little bit more ambiguous than that? Um, no, I, I had no intentions of writing a book. Um, I had just been, you know, I had been a a writer in the newspaper world for my entire career and I was, I kind of, um, was disillusioned with writing and I felt like I wasn't making any progress as a writer. And, um, and so I just wasn't, um, I just wasn't feeling it anymore. And so I think part of me hoped that in traveling and putting myself into situations where I was volunteering or trying out um, different professions in a way um, that I would find some other calling. So I intentionally um, volunteered as a teacher for a little while. Um, I volunteered with monkeys and I thought, well, maybe, maybe I'm the next Diane Fossey or maybe I'm, you know, maybe I'm meant to work with elephants. Um, but it turns out traveling made only made me want to write more. And, um, and another thing is that I started, I started reading books again while I was traveling. I hadn't been reading a lot of books. Um, I just, you know, I spent all day in the newspaper world around words. And I just, the last thing I wanted to do every night was crack open a book, but traveling gave me the opportunity to read books and really dig into some great writing. And, um, and that, motivated me to want to work on the craft of writing and to write my own stories again. I like that. I like the idea that travel really does present yourself with the opportunity to try on different selves and different potential selves. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think one of your trail guides, I think in Peru said, you never really know if you can handle the trail until you try the trail. Um, and so you tried different things on the road and rediscovered writing, it sounds like. You were attacked like a monkey, which is sort of a hook for the story um, of what's to come. So let's talk about your adventures on the road. Yeah, absolutely. I was attacked by a monkey, which was one of the terrifying things that uh, happened early on. And um, and it's funny how many people um, just... Like I remember putting it on Facebook that I was attacked by a monkey that day. And it's funny how people who are so far from the Bolivian jungle respond to that. And they're like, oh, I would have grabbed the monkey and thrown him, you know, thrown him across the jungle or whatever. But when you're actually in that situation and a monkey has jumped on you, there's um, it's pretty it's pretty scary. 
Um, and I was in a town that didn't have very good medical facilities. Um, so I ended up being stitched up by a vet and, um, and I had to look up what antibiotics to take. I went to the internet cafe, like still bleeding and looking up, um, looking up, uh, all kinds of information about antibiotics. Well, just to contextualize things, you weren't just randomly hiking in Bolivia when you were attacked by a monkey. Um, although I will say as someone who once held a sentimental, uh, vision of monkeys, that monkeys can be assholes. Monkeys um, are terrible. I think people think they're very cute, but they're actually not. <laughs> well, they're cute, sometimes cute assholes, but you were, you were working with monkeys when this happened. Is that right? I I was working with monkeys. Um, so Bolivia, right before I went to Bolivia, they um, they changed uh, some laws about, I think they made circuses illegal and kind of cracked down on the exotic pet trade. And so this was um, a large sanctuary that had formed out of that need and was housing a lot of the monkeys that had been um taken out of these circuses and out of these situations. And um, so I was working in Monkey Park and it was open air. So um, there were no cages or fences or anything. And the monkeys could come and go as they pleased, but we fed them every day. So the monkeys would return and, and there were regulars and we got to know a lot of the monkeys. Um, but yeah, I mean, they, they're really tricky. <laughs> they were, um, like one day I, I had my camera inside my like hiking pants that have the zipper kind of pockets. And, and then there's like a flap on top of the zipper. And it took about 20 seconds for a monkey to run up and undo that zipper and grab my camera. And I mean, they're fast and they, wow. they're good. And so like, this was pretty early in the trip. How did you reconcile these sorts of unexpected negative experiences and dangers with, you know, just the anxiety surrounding the trip in general? Did you, did you want to quit early on or what, what kept you going? Uh, you know, what kept me going is that I just felt like I had burnt every bridge behind me. So I just had to keep moving forward. I mean, I, I was so mentally broken down and kind of grieving my mom in advance that I knew the only thing the only thing I could do was to just keep going. It was, it was a really hard time for me. I, I felt like um, I was so lost that I was still searching for my path and I didn't know where it was. I just knew it wasn't behind me, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And I think sometimes those experiences are meant to be worked through, you know, that, that, um, that if you had gone home, you wouldn't have learned all the things that came later. You wouldn't have experienced all the things that came later. And what was interesting about your book is that it mixed some very classic travel experiences like, like Machu Picchu or safaris in Africa with more unexpected things um, like shopping for jeans in Argentina or bras in Vietnam, <laughs> right? Which, right? Which really become a part of the travel experience. I think when you look forward to the travel experience, you think that you're gonna, it's going to be those Machu Picchu moments that you remember. And actually, you point out in your book, which is something that I agree, that um, you know, there's this idea that sometimes there's places that will never look as good as they are on postcards, but Machu Picchu is not one of those places. I completely agree. Machu Picchu is totally worth the effort of making it there. 
But then you also have these weird experiences where suddenly you're on an Airbnb in Argentina with feral kids or you're looking for jeans and they all fit way too tight after in Argentina after, you know, wearing your cargo pants. So what what kind of experiences sort of taught you to be a traveler early on in these in these experiences? Um, you know, that's a good question. I think it took me it took me at least one continent to feel like I was a capable traveler, um, just to feel like I had my legs under me. And um, but, you know, I think every country presents some new challenges and um, and can really teach you something. Um, Bolivia was so hard on me and I was such a soft traveler at that point that um yeah, I like I had someone pee on my backpack. <laughs> I had, yeah, um, I had uh, a tour guide leave me um, in the town of Uni uh, right after going to the the salt flats, and um, and there were just all sorts of things that um, that I I think kind of taught me more about the world and made me not harder, but just a little bit smarter and savvier. And so, but it, it took a long time. I'd say at least like four or five months into the trip before I felt like, okay, I'm, I'm a real traveler now. I can do this. So your trip started in South America. It took you through Peru, Bolivia, and Argentina. It went to Africa, South Africa, mm -hmm. Uganda, Rwanda, Egypt, and then Jordan, Ethiopia, and then on to India and Thailand and other places. Was there, was it Africa then before you really felt like you were finally getting your, your, your travel legs a little bit? And, and was there a specific moment where it felt like, huh, I'm, I'm salty now? <laughs> um, I don't know that I, I ever had that. Oh, you know, there was a moment where, um, six months into the trip, my husband, who was a public school teacher, he came to visit me on his Christmas break and we um, we went to uh, Abu Simbel together in Egypt, and we were trying to figure out how to um, arrange transportation so that we could stay a couple days longer um, in the town of Abu Simbel beyond. Um, at that time, I'm not sure if it's still this way. The Egyptian government wanted people to have specific tours to go to this town um, because they had had some threats of terrorism for international travelers. And so we had to have a tour to get there, but then um, we could take a bus back. There were They would only let um, a certain number of international travelers be on public transportation though. So we were trying to arrange that and um, and my husband was still like still pondering it. And meanwhile, I had gone to a falafel shop, um, bought a couple bus tickets from the guy running the falafel shop. And I had two amazing falafels <laughs> and um, and I brought them back to my husband. And I was like, hey, I've got bus tickets and I have these sandwiches. And <laughs> and I did it in about 30 seconds. And he was like, who are you? Like, how did you just do that? And um, and so that's the moment where I just kind of saw myself in another way and realized how much I had changed and how much the trip had changed me. And I just felt much more confident um, in the way I move through the world and how I interact with people. And um, 
and just these everyday interactions, you know, I, I just felt much more capable. And, um, so it's not necessarily for me, like the challenge of whitewater rafting down the Nile or, or these other things that I did, which were big and felt like achievements for me, but also just being able to get a bus ticket when we weren't sure if we could, or just being able to mail a package home from India was, was a challenge. And I was really proud of myself for doing that. This is something that some of my listeners who might be dreaming about such a trip, but a little bit trepidatious, trepidatious might keep in mind is that there are some of those, a lady is peeing on my backpack type experiences in Bolivia. My hand is bleeding from a monkey wound. But if you travel in a smart way, eventually you just become an experienced traveler. And and suddenly, like I remember when I lived in Korea for a while and my sister came to visit and she was just impressed by my really crappy basic Korean because it was those simple transactions um, that sort of certified myself as an international traveling type person. Now, when you were in Africa, it, it sounds like you did a lot of your volunteer experiences. I mean, you worked as a teacher. Uh, was it in Rwanda? Yes. And then you worked for, for Freddie's Farm in Uganda, <laughs> which, uh, which ended up, you know, your volunteer experience there was sort of, you sort of were winging it. So how did you approach your volunteer experiences there? And what did you experience and learn from that? Um, in Uganda specifically, or just in general? Well, you all, you taught in, 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 in Rwanda, Rwanda as well. Yeah. And it sounds like you weren't actually trained as a teacher. No, uh, no, I, I would, I'm a terrible teacher, <laughs> which I learned. Um, I, I mean, that was a really humbling experience for me because I, I kind of thought, well, I speak English. Of course I can teach someone how to speak English. And of course it's not that easy. And I was really naive and, um, and I didn't, I, you know, I think, I think those experiences were really humbling for me and made me assess like what my, what can I bring to a community? Not necessarily like me stepping in and saying, I can help. And, you know, here's what I'm going to do for you, but actually assessing um, what my strengths are and what I can contribute. And, um, and so I, I thought, of course I can, I can teach and, and teaching is really hard. And um, once I was in that volunteer position, I reached out to um, some of my friends who teach English as a second language. And I just had to beg them for help um, because I didn't know how to make a lesson plan or how, how to start with the basics or what are valuable teaching tools. Um, I, yeah, it was, uh, those experiences were humbling and it was, um, you know, I, I think I stepped into those, uh, those volunteer positions with a lot of like bluster and thought that I was going to not save people, but I just, I had a lot of hubris and, um, and you know, the world taught me differently but they were still valuable experiences and I'm really happy that I had them. Um, you know, Freddie's farm, it turns out he didn't really have a need for me on the farm. So I ended up becoming a country music DJ for the local radio station, which was, um, a little bit of a, <laughs> of a switch for me, but you know, it was things like that. I, I got to meet the community in a new way. I got to meet people I wouldn't have otherwise met. And I did feel like I was, 
contributing something. So I was happy that I did it. Well, those are sort of the cool things that, that happen out of these volunteering experiences. I think before people travel, they assume that you're going to volunteer and then your reward will be the happy children that you helped in the classroom. When, when that <laughs> is kind of rare, that actually it's the, it's the hard, humbling lessons that you learn in the classroom. Or it's this crazy thing where suddenly you're a DJ in Uganda <laughs> right. playing Garth Brooks or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was really unexpected. And then there were some things that didn't make it into the book. Like, um, you know, I did some um, mentorship um, for young readers when I was in Laos. And then uh, in Argentina, I lived with um, some Hare Krishnas for a little bit and worked on their farm. Um, But, you know, I, I felt like those, some of those stories just weren't essential to um, to the main narrative of the book, and um, and and I wanted the book to have a certain momentum, and I I wasn't going to put stories in just for the sake of stories, but maybe they'll end up somewhere else. Well, one thing that distinguishes your memoir from other round the world type memoirs is that your your mother sort of underpins that you know your mother and her alternative futures. And so how, as you were traveling, not just in how you were writing, how did the presence or the memory or the affection for your mother underpin how you were traveling? Mm -hmm. Um, So things, uh, so my mother was alive the first half of the trip, but I knew her condition was deteriorating. And, you know, traveling I think gives you a lot of opportunity for introspection, but especially traveling slowly the way I was, you know, I, I had a lot of opportunity to think when, when you're on a bus for like 30 hours at a time or, um, or just spending time alone, you know, that gives you a lot of time to think. And so I had a lot of time to mine my own memories and think about, you know, what my mother would have liked to have seen and how she would have, um, enjoyed a place and, and just to think about my childhood and, um, and the memories that, that we did create together. Um, and just thinking about the way we talked about some of these places and, and some of the hopes she had expressed to me. Um, my biggest regret is that I didn't ask my mom when she was still, um, when she was still in the early stages of the disease, I didn't really take that opportunity to sit and talk with her about um, her interior life, you know? So, so a lot of this was guesswork um, in trying to put together what we had talked about in the past and, um, and things she had expressed to me, but um, you know, that's, that's just a real opportunity that I missed was digging in and really finding out who my mom was. So I spent a lot of the trip thinking about that. And by the time you left, your mom was at a state where she didn't fully recognize you. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So yeah. Um, so you went home for the funeral and then you kept traveling. Was, was that, I mean, I don't know if this is something really you can plan for, but what underpinned the decision to keep traveling? So... Um, I, I know me and I know how easy it is for me to get complacent. And I thought if I leave this trip six months in and go home for the funeral and go back to a place where, you know, I can just go down to 
the grocery store and there are 47 kinds of shampoo and there are a hundred plus channels on the TV and there's any kind of snack food I want and whatever, I'm just going to sit in my dad's house and, you know, I'm just going to enjoy all the, the little luxuries of life, um, back home. And, and I'm never going to leave the house again. <laughs> like it would, I would just sit there and be sad. And so, um, so I was in Egypt when my mom died and my family told me I probably shouldn't go home, that I shouldn't um, make the effort because, you know, I was so far away and, and she was gone and she wouldn't know. And then I thought, but I would know that I wasn't there. And plus I wanted to be there for my family. So I decided to fly home to Ohio for that. But because of what I said about, I knew I would get complacent. I purposely kept my backpack and all of my stuff in Egypt so that I would be forced to return. And how did grief, when you went back to Egypt and you continued to travel, you, you traveled, um, onto places like Jordan and to Ethiopia and then onto India and other parts of Asia, how did grief transform the journey or was grief always a part of it? I think grief was always a part of it. Um, first was the, not really the anticipation of grief, but I was already grieving my mom before she was gone. I had spent, you know, 10 years of her disease grieving her. And so I thought when she died that it would feel like more of a relief, but instead it was more like just the world cracked open a little more and I fell more into a hole. And so it was very, um, those first couple months back on the road after her funeral were really, really trying for me. Um, just trying to make sense of like, who am I and why am I doing this? And, you know, what does it mean to be a person in the world? Like if, if we're just going, if we're just going to die, then, you know, and just those big questions kind of reckoning with your own mortality and like, why are we even here? <laughs> and so, um, so it's really hard to travel through that. And it felt more like I was running from something instead of um, traveling for a purpose. And then it was really in, in India where I felt like I was able to slow down and make peace with myself and make peace with the grief of losing my mom. And, um, and I felt like I could live with it for the first time. And, and that gave me a way to continue on. You talk about how uh, going to India was like flipping on a switch inside. You felt lit with fr from within, and even though you were intimidated by going to the country. I was very intimidated by India. Um, and then a traveler friend of mine convinced me to go. Uh, she said, you know, every backpacker needs to go to India. Um, but I was, I was still very intimidated and very nervous. And to be honest, I didn't know a lot about India. Um, so we we arranged to go there, and then the night before we were set to go, um, she said, I met this man, and um, I'm going to go to Berlin with him. So have fun in Mumbai. And um, and so then- This is, then this is Barbara. Barbara is yeah, my favorite. Is, is Barbara uh, her real name? No, it's not her real name. Okay. But um, yeah. It, it so. feels like Barbara has her own book. And just so just so listeners know, Barbara has been divorced, right? And so she 
her challenges are different, but sometimes they're at odds with your own. Right. So we started traveling together um, a little bit in South America, and then we came together again in Africa. And then we decided to go, I decided to go to India with her. And then she, um, she leaves me for a man in Berlin. And um, so I end up in, yeah, going to Mumbai on my own, um, which was, which was not what I wanted. And it turned out to be such a gift because um, I just really fell in love with the country. I don't think I would have had the same experiences um, if I had been with, with Barbara. Um, And, and, you know, I just, I found a lot of really generous people who um, they, they, you know, um, weren't afraid to approach me. And I think if I had been with somebody, um, that wouldn't have happened. So I had these amazing experiences in India um, that I think happened specifically because I was a solo traveler. And then um, this sounds really eat, pray, love, but I ended up, I ended up at an ashram. And by the way, I I do love eat, pray, love. So this is not to disparage (laughs) eat, pray, love, Um, but it's become kind of a cliche to go to India and go to an ashram, but that's exactly what I did. And it was really helpful to me and very liberating to have all of these choices removed from my life and to just be for a little bit. Yeah. I thought that that was interesting that you talked about after this entire journey of having to make decisions every day, which is part of the the joy and the challenge of, of travel. Suddenly in the ashram, you were um you had decisions made for you mm-hmm. uh, and so what transformed there what 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 kind of enlightenment did you take home from the ashram well you know the the entire time i was traveling i had kind of thought of my mom as i i don't think victim is the right word but just as a woman who did, who had little agency you know she didn't she didn't um make her own decisions and that she um, didn't get a chance to do the things that she wanted to do. And then it was in the ashram that I really realized that people ultimately do uh, the decisions that are best for them. And it's possible that my mom, um, that my mom did make the decisions that were best for her and that she actually wanted. And those decisions were to be with her family and um, and when I started thinking about her in a new way, that just opened up a lot for me, and it made me feel so much more at peace um, that that she did in fact live the life that she wanted. Yeah, I think sometimes when we project onto parents, we think, oh well, mom or dad, they're just not as interesting as as I would like to be. And then you think, well, well one reason is because they raised me, you know, right. <laughs> And, and, um, and so did that transform the way that you traveled or was that just sort of a way to make peace with your morning or how did that change you? Yeah, I think it did make peace with my travels because from that point on, um, everything was just a little more joy filled and, um, and it was more an experience of discovery for me and less like I was trying to make up something for her or, um, to right some wrong. It was more about, um, about like just experiencing the gifts of the world, um, for myself, which, um, sounds a little self-centered, but it was, it was really a revelation for me that, um, 
just all the all the magic and wonder of the world and that it it felt like suddenly it was just all there for me. And your journey wasn't over. You had you said early on that that Halong Bay in in Vietnam was sort of in your mind a place where you would come to fruition in your journey. And so after this somewhat transformative moment in India, what were your travels like? Um oh, it was great. I mean, what they call it the banana pancake trail. Is that what they call it? That all the backpackers follow through. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah through. Um, so I went through Thailand. Um, I went through Cambodia and visited um, some friends of mine from Palm Springs who have relocated permanently to Cambodia and run a landmine clearing NGO. Um, spent time with them. I went through Vietnam. I went through Laos, which did not make it in the book, but it was, it was a really excellent part of my trip. It was just so excellent that, um, that it felt like it didn't belong in the book. Like then I spent, you know, three weeks in Laos and I was happy, (laughs) you Mm. know? Um, but it was just, it was really nice. I went back through Thailand a little bit, then, um, Malaysia, and then South Korea, and um, and then I was summoned for jury duty, and I went home. But I still had I still had some money left. I still could have traveled. There's there's the big dramatic twist. Right? Jury duty. <laughs> I know, I know. So um, when I originally wrote this book, it the original ending was just jury duty, <laughs> and then I thought there has to be something more than this. You know, I can't just end on a summons for jury duty and a threat that, you know, they'll put out a warrant for my arrest. So, um, yeah, but that was that's what got me home again. Well, and then how um, how, without giving away the ending, I mean, how did you choose to to wrap up your narrative? Um, So it it actually happened pretty organically. In that um, a couple of years ago, I booked this kind of intense itinerary through Southeast Asia, and um, and I wasn't sure why I was doing it. Like, why am I revisiting some of these places? And then um, and then I thought, oh, I'm doing the part of the same trip, only now it's different. It's it's with my family. So. Um, so once I I realized that I was doing that, um, then I thought that's that's the natural ending of my book. Now that it's all done and and the book of it is is coming out, um, what was the hardest part of the journey, and what was the most rewarding part of the journey? You know, it was it was very terrifying to be in Egypt during the Arab Spring, just because of um, for a point in time the government shut down the internet. And just being such a news person and someone who's very connected, um, just the lack of news, that was, that was very difficult. And that was probably the hardest part of, of the whole trip is that um, I, was, I was very deep in grieving my mom and I couldn't connect with anyone and, um, and I didn't know what was happening in the world. So just that feeling of being very disoriented and disconnected, um, that was probably my rock bottom. Mm-hmm. And then um, the best part of the, I mean, 
anything travel related, even the bad moments were good moments, you know, because they make good stories. I just, I'm so passionate about travel and what it can do for a person. And I think it, it makes me a better person. Um, when I'm traveling, I am the best possible version of myself. So, um, so I, I'm so grateful that I had the chance to do this and I would, I would go on another one year around the world trip, I would make it longer. I would travel endlessly if I could. Awesome. Well, how, how has this become a part of your life? How, how has this journey become a part of you? Uh, so, but I was naive in thinking that traveling for a year would kind of rid me of the travel bug and, um, and that it would knock some places off of my, my list, but the list has only gotten longer um, I, I want to revisit some of the places that I've been before, but of course, like with every place you go, then that list expands tenfold because you hear about all these other places, or there's just this other town that you need to see. Um, so I am very cognizant about, um, and just very careful to integrate travel into my life when I, whenever I can. And um, I have a five-year-old son now, and it's very important for me to show him the world and to teach him how to be a good citizen of the world. And, um, and he's a great traveler. Um, you know, I put him on a plane. Uh, it was a 13 hour flight to Asia. And I said, you know, we're going to be here for 13 hours. And he was like, I'm ready, let's go. And he's just up for anything. And it's really fun to see the world with him. Like, um, like last summer we went to Mexico city and he, he's really into skateboarders. So he met every skateboarder that we could find in Mexico city. And so I met every skateboarder in Mexico city and that was really, it was cool. It gave me a new perspective on a city and a new entryway into a culture. Um, and it's so, it's just a priority in my life is giving those experiences to him. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Maggie Downs' new book, Braver Than You Think, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpots.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.